Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Euphoria. European leaders agree a massive COVID spending plan. Republican rupture, the White House and the GOP remain divided over fresh financial aid and a China clampdown. The US sanctions more Chinese firms. Beijing calls it a mistake. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. I'm calling it a big shot edition of the show today. Big shots in Europe, as I mentioned, agreeing to a whopping multi-billion dollar recovery deal. Then we've got congressional big shots in D.C. fighting over the next stimulus bill. And of course, the big vaccine shots that will hopefully help us emerge from the COVID crisis. All three, I think, providing a boost to global sentiment. More help is coming. I think that's the message. The U.S. and Europe adding to Monday's gains. European stocks, in fact, now at four-month highs. Germany's stock market has traded positive year-to-date now. In Asia, Hong Kong was the winner, up some 2% plus. Context important, though, still down some 9% on the year. We said it was all about tech this week, too, and no disappointment there with the Nasdaq hitting fresh record highs. Amazon spiked almost 8% in the session yesterday. Microsoft rising more than 4%. Tesla jumping over 9%. There is nothing normal about these moves. And I have to say, I'm not the only person who's nervous. Investor Mark Cuban now says he sees similarities to the stock market bubble in the 1990s. His message is, don't get greedy. We have to keep in mind, second quarter U.S. earnings still set to fall some 40 percent, the worst quarter since the financial crisis. Yet you have to say the mixture of new fiscal stimulus, central bank aid and vaccine hopes appear to be the best immunization from fear that we've got at this moment. Still, it may make sense to be aware and take note of these business big shots, too. Let's get to the drivers. A landmark EU agreement after marathon talks, leaders have agreed a coronavirus relief package worth some $860 billion, as well as a $1 trillion plus budget for the next seven years. John Defteris is here with all the details. John, great to have you with us. Two words, debt mutualization. The COVID crisis has done something that no amount of suffering during the European debt crisis has achieved, and that's joint debt in order to finance support here. Quite fascinating. It is. And the debt to GDP as a result of this package, Julie, that a lot of people are overlooking because of the euphoria of the deal is over 100% of GDP. But can I say, what a grind here. It almost felt like a a university all-nighter, if you will, because they didn't sign this until just past 5 a.m. in Brussels. So it took a lot to get there. But this is pretty good, $860 billion for the stimulus plan alone, considering all the domestic programs are already in place, at least from the wealthier states. But I have to say, Julia, uh, 
Humpty Dumpty almost didn't stay glued together this time around because of the north-south divide. It was all about the grants versus the loans here. And when they came in, the package was supposed to be direct aid or grants uh, two to one over the loans. But the frugal four led by the Netherlands said uh, no can do here. And it was almost a 50-50 split with governance conditions tied into those grants as well going forward, something that kind of irked the Southern Europeans uh, who need the direct aid. And at the end of the day, I always find it quite fascinating, the European Union, it's the two anchor states that kept them glued together as a union, uh, being Germany and France, with Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron actually holding a joint press conference at, at the end of this arduous negotiation, saying, when we do need to come together, uh, we can. And the chips were on the table this time around, for sure. Yeah, Angela Merkel's legacy, I think, being defined here, too, with a step up in powers Mm. for EU institutions. You could make the argument that she worries about what the 27 remaining nations of the EU will do going forward, given the the steep divisions here. You made the point, though, the frugal four at times frugal five had to be in some way pacified here. Tax rebates, a lesson learned from the uh, from the Brits here, perhaps, too. I like the point you're bringing up. You know what? The other spin I have on this is that failure wasn't an option. And Angela Merkel, with her 15 years as chancellor, uh, knew it. Uh, I think the primary reason is because of the formal Brexit in 2021, right, Julia? Uh, They wanted to send a message to others who were perhaps thinking of breaking out that this unity will stay. Uh, Number two was a message to the anti-European Union populace at the same time. I'm thinking of the Five Star Movement or Cinque Stelle in Italy and the populists in Spain who have been arguing we're suffering through this and we need some support. And they had to balance that against the North at the same time. Uh, So I think this is important. And one other thing that the United States is not doing that Europe is doing, they're making this a long term infrastructure play for green infrastructure, by the way. The energy transition is all over this. The the president of the European Commission was suggesting it's a sustainable package over seven years. uh, And we've had the Germans, the French, the UK, even outside the European Union, leading this charge of the transition. So it's not just throwing all kinds of money at nothing. It's saying, let's rebuild Europe at the same time and make it greener. It's a pretty fascinating deal. That's why it took nearly five days to get it done. Yeah. Money's always tied to reform in the EU. You're not, you're not escaping without doing some degree of reform when you get it. John, very quickly, and this is a tough one to answer quickly, is, do you think this is as close as it gets to the mm-hmm. United States of Europe? They've come together on this during this crisis. Is this as good as it gets? Well, I I tell you, this was a real test, and I think it was something that Merkel wanted to get uh, delivered. But because we had the migration issue over the last six years, right, with the Middle East and Africa, particularly with Syria, uh, and because of the criticism from the Southern Europeans that Brussels is not doing enough for them, this is as close as you get to getting a deal that starts to glue them closer together uh, for a longer period of time. Uh, Seven years, $2 trillion says uh, quite a bit, but they had to answer the call, Julia, after the failure on so many fronts in the past. Yes, I couldn't agree more. John Defterius, great to have you with us on that. Thank you. So Europe may have a deal, but here in the United States, agreement on a fresh stimulus package feels, well, challenging. 
The Republican Party and the White House don't see eye to eye on hot button issues, including more funding for COVID testing and a payroll tax, among others. And all that's before they've even started talking to the Democrats. John Harwood joins me now. John, I think uh, some of the Republicans and the Democrats here would be gleeful if they could agree this in five days. Not looking likely based on disagreements even between the White House and the Republicans here, never mind the Democrats. That's right, Julia. But I do think that events are pushing the uh, leverage toward the Democratic Party. The uh, uh, Democratic Party passed a $3 trillion bill in May when it appeared, and certainly President Trump was encouraging the idea that the United States was putting the pandemic behind us. Well, the situation obviously has deteriorated sharply since then. Republicans slow walked the idea of responding to the Democrats. Uh, but now that the uh, uh, panic has gotten, the pandemic has gotten worse, the president's polling uh, standing has gotten much worse. Republicans are increasingly worried about their electoral prospects. And the economic recovery, as you know, Julia, has begun to slow. Uh, that is putting more and more pressure on Republicans to uh, fund some extension of uh, the uh, expanded federal unemployment benefits, provide some money to states and localities, and uh, uh, crucially, providing money for expanded testing and tracing, which the administration has resisted. And now Senate Republicans are beginning to buck the administration and say, yes, we need to substantially increase testing and tracing. You mentioned so many great points there. The incentives now are aligning, even if the Democrats wanted $3 trillion. The fact that we're even coming to some kind of agreement on doing more here is critical. And the economy at the heart of that, but also the health crisis too, John. Interesting to see the president finally tweeting last night, it's patriotic to wear a mask. Also reinstating, it seems, the coronavirus press briefings, too. What can we expect today from the first one? Well, those are the kinds of shifts that you would expect to happen when a president is in a deep, deep political hole as he runs for re-election. The president also fired his campaign manager last week. question is, will the president be able to pivot in a way that helps himself? The embrace of masks in his tweet uh, yesterday was grudging. Uh, he said uh, uh, many people say it's a patriotic thing to wear a mask. He included a picture of himself. He didn't say himself that he was urging people to wear a mask. And he didn't, uh, uh, to state the obvious, invoke any kind of executive order mandating mask wearing. Even this morning when he was tweeting uh, about the pandemic and the resumption of briefings, he continued to assert we're doing very well with the virus. That is false. And Americans know it's false. We're not doing very well. In fact, we're doing very poorly compared to the European Union and others who have uh, gotten on top of this situation, uh, if not crushed the virus, dramatically suppressed it. So uh, the question is, does the president try to handle this himself? Usually when he handles things himself, he hurts himself politically. Or is he going to uh, pu push out the uh, highly respected members of his task force, like Anthony Fauci, who he's been discrediting in recent days? Uh, that would be the uh, uh, advisable political move for him to make. But it's not clear whether he can uh, do that, yield the spotlight and acknowledge that his response has been inadequate so far. That's very difficult psychologically for the president to do. Yeah. And you turn on recent criticism. Many angles here. A few hours to wait. We shall see. John Harwood, great to have you with us. Thank you for that.
Now, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in London this hour for meetings with Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab. Talks focusing on China and are expected to include concerns over Hong Kong and Chinese telecommunications giant Huawei. CNN's Nick Robertson is live at Downing Street with more for us. Nick, a very delicate balancing act that the UK's got going on here. It knows it's angering China with recent moves, but at the same time, in the absence of a broader trade deal with the EU here, America, that relationship all the more important. Absolutely. It's all on the table for Boris Johnson. And I think we've got a flavor of that in uh, a statement from the 10 Downing Street on their view, the prime minister's view of how his early discussions went with uh, Secretary Pompeo. The Secretary of State is now meeting with Dominic Raab. They're having lunch together. They will hold a press conference in about an hour. They're sort of spending the most time together. They'll meet again uh, together this evening. But um, the view from Downing Street, yes, they talked about a British initiative, which is to have the Five Eyes group of nations, the United States, uh, along, with, along with Canada, along with Australia, along with New Zealand, along with the UK, develop new technologies. This is sort of the, the British answer to, well, if we can't have Huawei 5G, then let's all of us uh, who work together in security, let's develop that ourselves. There was talk, as you said, China, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, uh, Xinjiang province. Obviously, we've heard from uh, the, the US side that they've, they've put increased sanctions on Chinese companies based on the human rights violations for the Uyghur minority there in Xinjiang. So that's uh, clearly come up for conversation. It's not something Britain's done yet. The British, uh, according to the Chinese ambassador here, um, shouldn't go down that path and follow the United States. They talked as well about Iran, about the Middle East peace process. And yes, as you said, the importance of that free trade agreement, because the one with the European Union is looking shaky at best. If the UK can get at least a provisional agreement by the end end of the year, that would give the Prime Minister reason to sort of breathe a little easier. Uh, and the other issue that's come up, uh, according to Downing Street, was the issue of Harry Dunn, that young teenager who was knocked off his motorcycle near a US base uh, last year, uh, killed by a, the wife of an American diplomat, Anne Sekulos, um, extradition requested for her from the United States. But the US has been very clear that's not going to happen. So that a thorny issue on the table as well. But as you say, it's that balance over the free trade agreement uh, and being perceived as not doing America's bidding on everything they want in China. The prime minister has said he wants and he knows that the relationship is going to go on longer. And he wants to keep that relationship with China open as well. Yes, receive something, but don't give up too much. Lots to discuss. CNN's Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that there. And as Nick mentioned, we'll bring you that press conference with Mike Pompeo and Dominic Raab in the next hour. Now, picking up on one of the things Nick was saying there, Beijing accusing Washington of violating basic norms of international relations following fresh U.S. sanctions. The U.S. Commerce Department singling out 11 Chinese companies over alleged human rights violations in the Xinjiang, the Xinjiang region. This would also pressure some major American companies doing business with the sanctioned Chinese firms. David Cover is live in Beijing with more. David, I know your pronunciation far better than mine here. Talk us through what we know. <laughs> Only based on asking the locals here. That's how, how you learn it. Uh, but I can tell you one thing. It's interesting to hear from Nick's perspective there as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is meeting with British officials right now. And, and the focus, as Mike Pompeo laid out last week, is the Chinese Communist Party. That's top of the agenda. 
And it's interesting that they're continuing to push that directly, not just China in general, but the party is what they're now singling out in rhetoric, Julia. And this is Xinjiang that you're referring to. And, and Nick mentioned it as well. It's that far western region. And the 11 companies that have been sanctioned have really a range of, of roles. They run from biotech to making wigs. And as you mentioned, those companies that are American companies that might be doing business with those entities could face backlash as well and, and potential sanctions uh, as they're continuing to operate. And those are major companies in the U.S., according to one report published by an Australian strategic um, publication that suggests these are, you know, could be Nike, could be Apple, could be Calvin Klein. So really well-known brands. What is going to be interesting here is to see beyond rhetoric, where do the Chinese go? Because what we have seen in recent weeks is as the U.S. has continued to either issue sanctions with regards to Xinjiang, with regards to uh, stripping Hong Kong of its special trade status, with regards to increased tensions in the South China Sea, no matter where it is, the Chinese have said that this is a domestic issue with regards to Xinjiang, that it has to do with terrorism and subversion and preventing separatism and stopping extremism. They go on to say this is internal affairs and everyone else should essentially keep out of their business. That's how they phrase this. And they say they will respond with necessary countermeasures. Julia, they stop short, though, of specifics there. And, and part of me wonders, are they waiting on the U.S. election? Are they going to wait this out long term? Are they going to perhaps react after the U.K. weighs in with any potential backlash that they may be putting sanction-wise with regards to Xinjiang? It is just right now a waiting game, but the rhetoric is strong. The actions haven't yet followed suit, Julia. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Particularly as far as the United States is concerned, it's one of the few things where both the Democrats and the Republicans seem aligned on is being more forceful in, in handling China here. So I'm not sure as far as the waiting game goes, it's, um, it's going to work. David Culver will discuss this, no doubt, through the coming weeks. And thank you once again for the pronunciation. Right. I won't get it wrong next time. All right, still to come on First Move, the shopping shake-up. The CEO of bulk buying company Boxed on how the pandemic is reshaping retail and the company taking on the dairy industry with a little help from Oprah. I speak to the CEO of plant milk maker Oatly after a celebrity-heavy investment round. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where we're looking for a green open here on Wall Street. The Nasdaq set to hit fresh records once again. The S&P 500 actually beginning the session, if we start like this, in positive territory again for the year two. Optimism, I think, over the EU recovery deal and vaccine hopes helping drive sentiment in the session today. Anything, of course, that helps support growth going forward will also help oil demand. And we're seeing Brent and U.S. crude both up over 3% in the session so far. That $40 a barrel oil, as you can see there, trading above uh, in both cases for Brent and WTI context. So everything oil still down some 30% year to date. So these gains have to be put in perspective. Meanwhile, speaking of perspective, a weakness in the jobs market triggering a punishing round of layoffs at LinkedIn, the networking site announcing today that it's laying off 6% of its global workforce, citing the drop in corporate hiring. All right, now to the global race for a coronavirus vaccine. Early results from trials suggesting a vaccine developed by the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca is safe and induces an immune response, as we were discussing on the show yesterday. I think getting a grip on coronavirus 
will be next year. Having a vaccine distributed, hopefully, will be before the end of this year. But remember, distributed is anything from producing a million doses to two billion doses. And the sooner we get an efficacy result that is positive, the faster we can scale up. So I think it's really quite likely that we will know by the end of this year, or maybe even a few months before that, that some vaccine works. Dr. Amesh Adalja is senior scholar at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security, and he joins us now. Dr. Adalja, fantastic to have you on the show. I'm sure you were just listening to that. Do you share that level of optimism about a vaccine coming before the end of the year, or do we need to be a little bit more cautious? I do think we need to be a little more cautious. You have to remember that vaccine development is something that's traditionally measured in years, not months. And although we are breaking records with coronavirus vaccines, we have to be prepared for things to slow down in phase three clinical trials or with manufacturing scale up. So we need to really prepare to fight this virus without without a vaccine for probably a period of 18 months to two years, because that's how long it's going to take to get it scaled up, to get it into the arms of people all around the world. And I think that's an important point to make that we are making great progress, but we shouldn't uh, overpromise. Yeah, as someone who's focusing on the policy planning and the pandemic response, when you're saying, look, we've got to be prepared for an 18 to month to two year run, we have to pay attention here. We'll come back to that. I just want you to describe, because I often think we throw out these terms like phase one, phase two and phase three. And I just want to make sure that my audience understands what we're looking for in particularly phase one and phase two. And then we can talk about phase three. So phase one and phase two clinical trials are early development and phase one really focuses on safety. Does this cause an intolerable amount of side effects? And clearly the vaccines that have advanced through phase one have had some side effects, but all manageable. So it tells you that this is relatively safe and it's small numbers of people. It doesn't tell you the whole picture, but it gives you enough of a signal to move into phase two where they continue to study safety, but now also try and study, does the vaccine do what it's intended to do? Meaning, does it create antibodies? Does it create T cell immunity? And at the same time, is it safer in a larger group of populations? And you start to figure out what the dose might be. Do you need to give one dose or two dose or how many micrograms per dose do you need to give? So phase one and phase two are the early stages of development that try to get you into phase three where all the real work really begins. And then when we're talking about phase three, we're talking about challenging the vaccine. So putting the people that have received the vaccine effectively into harm's way in situations where the virus is spreading and they either are protected or they aren't from the virus. Is that correct? Right. So what phase three does is really show whether or not the antibodies and the T cell immunity that we proved in phase two, is it effective in stopping people from getting infected, going, needing to be hospitalized, getting a complication or dying from this or spreading the virus? We're checking for really hard outcomes to see, does this actually work in a real world setting? So there are many places in the world where this virus is circulating. So what you do is you randomize people to get the vaccine and not get the vaccine and then compare the rates of what happens to those people. And this is a large study with a larger group of people and you follow these people for for a longer period of time and that's really when we know this virus this vaccine is something that's going to be effective against this virus when we're talking about 
what we're seeing at this moment, whether it's uh, AstraZeneca and Oxford University, we're seeing big manufacturing deals being signed all over the world. The Serum Institute of India as well, I believe, involved with AstraZeneca and, and Oxford University too. They are prepared and willing to scale up in terms of manufacturing capacity before we've even got to the stage where we're happy with the results from phase three. Beyond actually seeing a vaccine that we're, we're happy and that's safe and that works, is the greatest risk here in manufacturing a vaccine that may never come to market? Yes, it is. It's a major financial risk, and we've never seen this before with any type of vaccine, and it's also embodied in operational warp speed going on here in the United States. This is something that people have decided needs to be done because we cannot wait, because we know that the longer that this virus remains a threat, the longer all of our lives are in jeopardy, that our economy is in shambles, and and this is one way to try and reduce that uh, lead time for a vaccine so that we can get it into the arms of people and make this virus something that's part of our past as quickly as possible, but it is a major financial risk to do that because some of these vaccines may not make it through phase three clinical trials. You know, it's interesting as someone who looks at at policy planning, we've not second guessed this decision at all, whether that's the private sector or the public sector. We don't feel like we have a choice yet where things like uh, wearing masks are concerned, listening to expert advice, particularly here in the United States, there's been serious mixed messages. Do you worry that not necessarily knowing who to trust when and how to behave will also impact people's willingness to take the vaccine. And that could have huge implications for health too. We can't mess this up. Definitely. The vaccine hesitancy movement and the anti-vaccine movement are ready to pounce on this vaccine even before it's been uh, developed. So this is going to be very important for public health messaging to really be clear about what the safety is, what the side effects are, what the risk benefit ratio is to persuade people to get the vaccine when it is in their best interest. And this is going to be difficult because you can expect this to be politicized. You can expect the anti-vaccine movement to undermine confidence in the vaccine. And this is something we saw during the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic pandemic as well, where that vaccine was undermined and we had one of the lowest uptakes of a vaccine uh, for flu ever. So this is something we really have to start thinking about now and making sure that we're on the offense and not uh, reacting to uh, myths and uh, disinformation and arbitrary assertions that are going to come from the vaccine, the anti-vaccine movement, uh, undoubtedly. Yeah, there's enough resistance without seeing a sort of political interference, perhaps from the top. Uh, Dr. Adalja, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Senior scholar at the John Hopkins Centre for Health Security. Thank you for that. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. US stock markets are up and running this Tuesday. We're building on yesterday's gains in early trade tech, which rallied 2.5% Monday, outperforming once again, as you can see. But airlines, banks and energy stocks are also higher to the recovery play in focus, the tech giant IBM is also gaining strength after beating profit expectations. Big Blue's sales woes continue, though, with revenues down more than 5%. But cloud computing results came in stronger than expected, and that's helping a stock driving at higher today. Margins also better for that name as well. Coca-Cola in focus sales, taking their biggest quarterly hit in decades amid weak demand from restaurants. But the firm did see improved beverage demand globally going forward. So slight forecast coming from Coca-Cola there, too. In the meantime, a big executive departure in the world of retail. The CEO of luxury goods conglomerate Tapestry is stepping down after less than one year on the job. The company says for personal reasons. 
Tapestry is the parent company of the Coach and Kate Spade brands. Now, if there's ever a time to be a big box online retailer, surely it's during a pandemic. And that's exactly what our next guest does. Boxed appears better equipped to deal with the current surge in U.S. coronavirus infections, which is putting traditional retailers under further strain. While increased consumer demand has served it well, though, there are concerns about staff safety and delivery capacity, too of the firm's three fulfillment centres are in Texas and Nevada, states that have seen a significant uptick in cases. Chi Huang is the co-founder and the CEO of Box, and he joins us from the company's other fulfillment centre in Union City, New Jersey. Chi, always fantastic to have you here on First Move. Let's start there just with what you're seeing in terms of demand and how you are protecting workers that you have on those sites. Yeah, you know, a lot of folks have been saying unprecedented uh, uh, throughout history. And I don't know if they're 100% getting it right whenever they use that term. But truly, what we've seen has been unprecedented from the stocking up early on uh, to the second kind of surge of demand now that we're seeing, especially in non-food products and cleaning products. It has been a few wild, wild months for all of retail and especially for us here at Box. Are you seeing unprecedented to use your word and we have overused it levels of demand i mean you clearly saw a period back in april when we saw the peak particularly in areas like new york city but obviously we've seen it shift now to to southern states too protecting workers clearly critical part of this as well absolutely and um it has been the ultimate responsibility for us to not only take care of our customers but also uh equally as important take care of those folks uh, within our buildings and so uh, we had we we bore the the, the worst of it uh, over the last sixty to ninety days here in New Jersey, here in New York City. Um, but now our other fulfillment centers between Dallas uh, and and Vegas are 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 seeing that second wave. And so uh, for us, taking those learnings that we've learned here um, in the East Coast uh, and propagating those throughout the country in our other buildings has been really important. Things like um, uh, making sure there's a mandatory thirty minute downtime between shifts so no one's mingling in the parking lot. Uh, things like allowing folks to uh, uh, spread out during breaks, uh, mandatory face masks, all the things that you would think are not only common sense, but also things that make folks uh, really believe we're doing the best for them have been really important for us. We're actually just showing some images. And I know one of the key differentiating factors for your business is just how much is automated. But we were just showing some of your workers and, and they weren't wearing masks, but they were wearing gloves. I just want to make sure for our viewers that are perhaps wondering, what is your policy with regards mask wearing wherever you're operating the warehouses around the country? Yeah, actually here in our buildings, it might have been some B-roll that was uh, filmed beforehand. But right now, right. everyone, as you, as you walk into the building, uh, you're, you're required to have a mask uh, on uh, the minute you set foot in the building. So uh, there's a no tolerance policy in the sense of uh, once you come in here, uh, we got to keep everyone safe and you have to have a mask on. Yes. OK, perfect. I just want to clear that up in case we get questions uh, yeah. afterwards. You know, what, ex- what exactly are people buying? And have you seen, particularly at peak case times when we are seeing people perhaps concerned, have you seen certain things being bought more often and has that now lessened off or are they still buying what we saw during peak crisis period? Yeah, so, uh, you know, every time uh, we're on the show, we, we kind of joked uh, uh, about the fact that I'm a toilet paper salesperson. And uh, throughout these years, I never thought it would be that popular of a profession uh, in 2020. Um, but, you know, that initial hoarding of toilet paper has definitely subsided. Uh, folks have moved on from there to canned foods, uh, canned goods. And then now in the most recent surge, what we're seeing is that, you know, cleaning supplies, 
anything antibacterial is starting to see um, uh, a renaissance of sorts in terms of uh, what the customers are demanding. So uh, it's been ebbs and flows uh, uh, of what we're seeing. But right now, everyone has definitely, from our data, has shown that uh, cleaning products are top of mind. What's really interesting for the viewers out there as well is that when you quantify kind of what we're seeing uh, today, uh, the cohorts of customers that are coming in are the stickiest in the history of our company. And I think mm. for other online players, they're probably seeing it there as well. Folks are shopping for the first time online for these products. And after they receive it, if it's a decent price, if it's not damaged, they're thinking to themselves, why didn't I do this the entire time? Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? What kind of increase in new users have you seen throughout this period? Stickiness is one thing, but just bringing them onto the platform in the first place is, is critical too. Yeah, starting around March when we first saw that, uh, uh, that kind of sustained uh, surge of, of customers, uh, we found since then, um, you know, we've had months where we're double uh, or more when it comes to new top of the funnel customers. And uh, again, an interesting stat is that the demographics are certainly shifting too. Traditionally, remember, Julia, we're, we're primarily geared towards millennial customers, uh, folks who didn't have the time, the means, or the patience to visit a big box store. But now it's a, an older demographic that's certainly coming in, uh, uh, as we can see in our numbers here. Yeah, those that are more likely to be concerned and stay at home and do their shopping online, perhaps, rather than um, would have done beforehand. What about the broader retail environment? We've talked about this in the show in the past. It was already challenged in many ways. There was already this push online. We've seen a number of retailers, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere, struggling as a result of the COVID crisis. Some have even entered Chapter 11. Do we see more of this? I I think we're going to see a lot more Chapter 11 before all is said and done. I think Retail is already a very difficult business. Uh, I, I think a lot of them were, were way over levered even before this current crisis. And we're going to see a lot of Chapter 11s and probably quite a few Chapter 7s uh, as well. Um, what you find, though, is that uh, the folks emerging from Chapter 11, um, uh, retailers typically die a very slow death uh, because they have the ability to not only, you know, uh, sale lease back some of their properties, uh, do layoffs. And basically what you find is that a lot of them have all these different kind of um, uh weapons in their kind of uh, treasure chest to be able to kind of save off a Chapter 7 uh, bankruptcy in which they finally and fully go away. So we'll see a lot of Chapter 11s in the company months, uh, that's for sure. With that said, though, the folks that can invest into e-commerce, that can invest into changing how the stores are used, I think those folks are actually going to come and emerge even stronger. Uh, again, automation, like the stuff that you see behind me right now, it's not only for, for us to be able to uh, provide efficiency so that we can offer even lower prices to the customer, But you're going to see, actually, what we're finding is that there's less physical touches of these boxes, up to 20% less humans touch the boxes. And you can make the argument that uh, automation not only saves money, but also provides a a safer environment uh, to get some of these boxes out the door. Yeah, absolutely. The the less touching and the less close proximity for your workers in particular, then the better. And uh, that's with us for the foreseeable future. Great to uh, get the update from you. Uh, Stay in touch, please, and uh, stay safe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Chia Huang there, the CEO of Boxed. All right, up next, milking the moment, the CEO of Oatly joins First Move to discuss raising money, global growth, and one day going public. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Oprah Winfrey, Howard Schultz and Jay-Z's Rock Nation, just some of the famous names investing in plant milk maker Oatly. 
The Swedish company raised $200 million in a Blackstone-led funding round. The company says it plans to use the money to expand across the 20 countries across Europe and Asia, where it already has a footprint. And joining us now is Tony Peterson. He's the CEO of Oatly. Tony, fantastic to have you on the show and congratulations with the funding round. This is a huge vote of confidence from some very high profile names. What makes Oatly such a great investment opportunity? Hi, Juliano. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, the last month events, you can see that so many things has changed. And I think it's like triggering things at accelerated level. We don't know what the tomorrow is going to look like for sure, but, but there are things in movement that you can see accelerating. Sustainability definitely being one of them. And I mean, we make oat note, yeah, but the idea is so much bigger than that. Um, and it's driven by young people who understand that they're going to be given what's going to be inherited. So that is a really powerful movement that is global. And, you know, you can see that across uh, all the continents. Most people want to do good and they want to eat healthy and drink healthy and all that. Is this about sustainability then, do you think, for your customers? Or is this about milk intolerance? Because when I look at the statistics on the number of us who have some form of intolerance, whether it's minor or major, it's huge. Oh, yeah. I mean... The vast majority of the world population are, are, are intolerant to, to, to cow's milk. But, and you know, when this whole case, if you look at the development of the plant-based category, it's all started with lactose intolerance. But what you see today is conversion from cow's milk into plant-based and, and specifically into Oatly. And, and that's a, this is a little bit of a different driver. And, and what's behind that is health, of course, but definitely sustainability. So, so it has developed throughout the years. I mean, plant-based milk has been around for, for I don't know, 30 years or so, you know. Uh, but, but this is something different. And that's why you see the massive acceleration here. Um, because that dairy volumes across the world is so big. And there's so much to go for there. And, and that is where you can see how, how cow's milk is, cha- is challenged in a way it hasn't been before. I read one uh, estimate that suggested that this dairy alternative market could be a $35 billion market by, by 2026. Do those kind of numbers make sense to you? Do you mean the plant-based milk uh, category? Yeah. in terms of the market. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, you. I think you should look at the whole dairy market. And, and I don't know, estimation around a trillion US dollars. I, I mean, that is the market. That is, uh-huh. that is the things that's going to change, you know. You're saying you're the ultimate disruptor to the milk market. Step aside, um, step aside cows here. You know, when I was doing my um, right. preparation and my research for, for this interview, the majority of people said to me that the reason why they buy Oatly is because it tastes better than any other oat milk product on the market. And it does seem when you go into a market abroad, you suddenly become the market leader. Does that come down to the product itself? Yes, I think, yeah, you, absolutely. You have to have amazing products. And, you know, we've been, we've been nerding down on those for 25 years only, you know, and we're the only company in the world that's been doing that. So there's a lot of craftsmanship. You have a, a technology that we use. But, you know, it is more than that today for consumers. It has to be good, 
but it's also who you are as a company and what you stand for. Th that is equally important for that consumer. Talk to me about expansion plans. Where is the bulk well, of your revenue generation, whether it's Europe or Asia in particular, where I know, again, intolerance is, is higher than anywhere? Where, is, uh, where are you going to spend this money? On all three continents. Um, I mean, we have, our, our, we have a strong, strong foothold in, in, in Europe, for sure, where we've been around for a long time. Now, U.S. is actually the biggest single market for us. But you see what we have done in Asia and China, where we created this whole new plant-based category. It didn't exist like a year ago. It, it, it didn't exist there. And you can see how we are driving that whole change and how that market is, is, is the pace of that market is completely different than anywhere else. So it's going to be super exciting to see the development there. But we're going to like those are the, the markets we want to be and develop and, and where we want to be the, the leaders. What about COVID, Tony? What impact is that going to have, whether it's your operations or on your expansion plans? Because many companies at this moment are saying, hang on, we're going to be cautious about spending and investing at this moment. Yeah, you know, um, we are very humbled about the, the, the situation we are in. I mean, COVID-19 is, is nothing less than a tragedy for so many people. We grew about 90% last year, and despite the pandemic, we think that we're going to reach the similar results for this year. And and we haven't faced any major hiccups when it comes to supply. Surprisingly, uh, we definitely thought there would be more, but we have been very... Uh, the, 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 the measures we've taken to, to protect production have, have been very heavy, and, and I think, yeah, we've been able to manage that whole situation. But, but you don't see a slowdown in terms of demand right now anywhere. And very quickly, where do you source your oats from, by the way? That's a very important question. Yeah, and that's the beauty of oats. You can grow them anywhere. You can grow them in, in any continent. And, and mainly in, in Europe, it comes from Sweden and, and Nordics. And for the US, it comes from Canada. Hmm, good to know. And a final quick question here, Tony. When private equity gets involved, they do look at exits. What about going public one day? What are your views on that? Yeah, I mean, we're keeping the options open. I can't comment that right now. But, but I mean, we're an independent company. We're not part of any structure. Um, and it, I think we've been favored by that. But what the future holds, well, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yes, we'll get you back to discuss, no doubt. Yeah. Tony, fantastic to chat to you. Tony Peterson, CEO of Oatly there. Congratulations on the money raising again. All right, coming up on the show, a torrid summer for tech. Amazon helped the Nasdaq hit record highs yesterday as the stay-at-home trade remains strong, but can the rally last? All that ahead. back to First Move for the final look at what we're seeing for U.S. stock markets this morning. We remain higher, though the Nasdaq now underperforming. Oops, we've talked it down a bit. We are still trading in record territory. The Nasdaq now up more than 20 percent year to date. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, we'll talk about IBM as well, because I know that was one of the drivers of, of broader sentiment here with that stock rallying too. But you know when I see Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla rallying, seven, eight, nine, ten percent. I look at these markets and I go, they're very frothy. Yeah, and you know, I think that's why we see a little bit more hesitation coming into the markets today. Amazon 
staggering uh, number yesterday. I think they added more than the entire market cap of Boeing in that gain yesterday. Microsoft as well surged uh, on some positive uh, analyst reports. But um, but these, these, you know, we're now heading into earnings season, and I think the question for investors is: Are these stocks priced for perfection? Should they take some money off the table? just in case earnings end up disappointing slightly. Uh, and we are in a slightly strange earnings season. If you look at IBM, that stock is up slightly today uh, off the back of 31% drop in earnings. I think when a company posts a 31% drop year on year in earnings and still the stock rises, you see the kind of situation that we're in. They did better than expectations, but they are seeing the kind of dichotomy that we do expect to, to, to play out during this tech earnings season. The short-term recessionary cuts that we're seeing from businesses, they cut back on spending on things like IBM's business and technology services, while at the same time this is accelerating the adoption of things like cloud and AI that, that IBM is, is aggressively pivoting into. I think that sort of short-term cuts versus long-term accelerated adoption is something that we're going to see in tech, and it just depends how the balance falls. Oh, I pulled out exactly the same thing, Claire. Cash preservation mode. That was the message from IBM. Clients delaying projects, deferring purchases, favoring OPEX, operating expenditures, efficiency over capital expending. And surely that's going to continue. But to your point, we know the bad news already. It's about the future and the predictions, and we're just not getting these forecasts. Let's talk Amazon taking measures. Amazon Prime Day seems to be off. Yeah, I think this was expected. There were a lot of rumors around this, uh, Julia, in April when we saw the, the, the demand surge that Amazon saw. They've hired sort of in the region of 200,000 uh, people to try to deal with that. They, they did now confirm to me in a statement today that Amazon Prime Day will be delayed, uh, they said, until later this year. They haven't officially set a date yet. Presumably it will have to come before Cyber Monday. Otherwise, you know, it seems like there's no point when you're heading into the, the holiday shopping season. So perhaps sometime uh, in the autumn. But, but, you know, I think part of this will be about logistics. Perhaps they are, you know, looking at their sellers and their, their, their sort of fulfillment network and, and worrying about how they will handle uh, another surge in demand because of all the discounts. And also they said in their statement that they are trying to do this in a way that will protect the safety uh, of their employees. This is something, of course, they faced a lot of criticism for uh, throughout the pandemic. Yeah, worker safety paramount. They've got enough to cope with uh, given the level of demand that they're seeing already. Great job, Claire Sebastian. Thank you so much for that update there. All right, that just about wraps up the show for today. I'm Julia Chasley. You can also listen to our podcast, cnn.com slash podcast. But for now, thank you for watching. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.